thing turned on. There we are. And found there a well flowing of water. The herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over it too, so he named it Sitna. He moved away from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth. For he said, At last the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzah and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. Then he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. Then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite, and Basemeth, the daughter of Ellen the Hittite, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Okay? So going back then to uh, verse 26, or excuse me, verse 18, uh, we're, we're just continuing the story of conflict that we got into uh, last week. And, uh, and he, he talks again about these wells that, uh, that Abraham's servants had dug and that the Philistines had plugged up. And so Isaac just goes out and he just digs the wells again. Okay, and it's, it's yeah. Well, yeah, you would if you yeah, you would if you read that verse by itself. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I I read it in conjunction with the other. So I think what's going on there is to some degree what you said. Abraham's gone off the scene so we can get away with this. Okay. They were afraid of Abraham, which is why they entered into a treaty with Abraham in the first place a number of years before. Uh, but what's clear here now is that this is happening after the death of Abraham. How old are the twins at this point? They're at least 15, right? So, so, uh, so uh, Isaac is by now 75 years years age, right? Because he had the twins when he was six. He didn't have the twins. He fathered the twins when he was 60. Okay, so he's 75. So, uh, 
it, it is a little ambiguous there, but it seems like the stopping of the wells is in some ways associated with their envy of Isaac. Uh, but they only feel like they can get away with it because they know Abraham is dead. Okay, so uh, I don't know, uh, Mike, you kind of have to process that and figure that out, but it seems like uh, those two elements are, you know, kind of mixed together there in, in their stopping of the wells. But whatever the case, whether they did it earlier or, or uh, whether this is a result uh, strictly of, of their envy of Isaac, whatever the case is, what is striking here about Isaac is the point that, that Jim brought out is that they don't go out uh, Isaac just doesn't go out and go to war over these wells. He just goes out and he just digs them again. Okay. Now, now this contention starts over these wells, and it mentions a specific well that they that they dug, and what they found there was flowing water. So you know, I'm not uh, I'm not an expert in wells and and water sources and whatever, but you can imagine the difference between digging a well and just finding standing water down in the ground and digging a well and you find flowing water. I think I'd rather find one with flowing water. It's a much more secure well. If something gets in it, it gets washed away, you know. And, uh, and so, actually, the, the Hebrew there, it, it could be translated living water. We have found living water here. There's an idea. We've really found a pretty good deal here. Okay? And what happens to this well where they found, where they found this flowing water? Okay, the Philistines said, hey, that's our water. Okay, and so they have this big fight over it. It doesn't actually tell us how the fight gets resolved or if it does get resolved. But you kind of get the impression that Isaac just kind of lets it go. And he goes over and he digs another well. Okay, and when he digs the second well, what happens? They quarrel over that as well. Okay. So he, everywhere he goes, he digs as well. The Philistines come and they say, that's our water. That's our water. That's our water. So finally, what does he do? Okay. okay. He moves even further yet. So this is now the second time he's moved because of their envy. Okay. And, and because of their, uh, their animosity towards him. So he has now moved uh, a second time. And what is striking here is that in each one of these situations, although these wells were, you know, that he had every right to these wells, he put the work into it, he put the money in it, he invested in them, and they were by all rights his. Rather than endure this conflict with these neighbors of his, he just moves on. And, and we discover something about Isaac here that that Isaac is a peacemaker. You know, we're going to see, you know, as, as we often do in Scripture, we see people with all their warts and faults and everything, and we're going to see Isaac's faults. We're going to see his warts. We've already seen one with the deception regarding his wife. And so we're going to see his faults. And they're going to be very graphically displayed for us when we get to chapter 27. But we need to remember the good qualities of Isaac, like we remembered last week about even in the midst of that whole ugly thing with his wife. We saw how much he loved her. And, uh, and, and, and in this situation here, we, we see this picture of Isaac as the peacemaker. Is that even though, even though he has really a claim and a right to these wells that he has dug, 
for the sake of peace with his neighbors, he simply moves on. And and that's really instructive to me because uh, I'm not typically that way. <laughs> you know, when somebody steps on my toes, when somebody infringes on what I think of as my rights, you know, you know, the hair goes up on the back of my neck. You know, I just kind of, you know, I kind of scrunch my shoulders and hunker down and go, you, you can't do this to me. And oftentimes I would rather have conflict for the sake of my privileges and my rights and my name and my reputation. And, and we don't see that with us. You know, he's in, in one way, in one way, he's a type of Christ. Remember what Ephesians chapter two tells us about Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that passage in where we hear that that classic, uh, classic Christology there in Christology there in in Philippians chapter chapter two. You know, it's a, it's a classic statement of our understanding of Christ and who he is and what he is. You know what the context is there in Philippians chapter 2? It's conflict in the church. And before he says that about Christ, he says, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a servant. A servant, excuse me, became a servant. And, and the instructive thing there is, is that in disputes within the church, Paul says, have the mind of Christ, who was willing to be thought of as less than he actually was, in order that he could be our servant. And that's what we see here in the life of Isaac. We see one who has certain rights and certain things that belong to him, but he is willing to forfeit those things in order that he can be a peacemaker. And, and, and our tendency, of course, is, is I, want, you know, I don't want people to think less of me than I am. You know? So if I, you know, if I have a conflict in the church and, and I'm right and the other person's wrong, I, I want them to know I'm right. And I don't want to back down. Now, there are times when it is obviously appropriate to, to uh, struggle and fight for the truth. But Paul is making a very clear pattern for us there in the mind and the life of Christ that we are to imitate. And I find Isaac, Isaac doing this in, in a very striking way. And, and I discover from this that there, there are some things that are more important than my rights. Rick, I'm, I'm a little bit of an inconsistency here. More than that, it's kind of like his faith is that I don't have to have that because God's promise and yep. the land is big enough that I'll just, I don't have to hang on to every little thing. You know, kind of like I see a lot of people sitting in the states, I want this, I want that. You know, it's, it's just greed. It's like there's a whole rest of the world out there you can be blessed in. But I noticed two things. After he gives up the wells, then he goes to Beersheba and God appears to him and blesses him. And then. Abimelech comes after him. I mean, this is not typical, I don't think. If you're moving away and retreating and retreating, the other guy doesn't come make a peace treaty. Comes to for peace. <laughs> he's worried about yeah, him. And, yeah. he's, and he's still dealing. Yeah. 
And God dies from a position of strength, even though he's being a peacemaker. So there's, just because you're a peacemaker doesn't mean you're not dealing from a position of strength sometimes when you're in God's will. Well, absolutely. And, and, and that's, that's really the next point. How, how is Isaac able to be a peacemaker? It's because he does know he's a sojourner. He knows he has the promise. He knows he has the blessing of God. And, and when I'm stamping my feet and insisting on my way, no matter how much conflict it causes in my relationships with people, when I'm doing that, oftentimes I'm doing that because I've lost sight of the promise of God. Isaac just knows, you know, God's with me. God's for me. So I don't have to stand my ground and fight my cause because God is going to fight my cause for me. And so because he is a sojourner and because he has the mentality of a sojourner and because he understands, uh, as Mike points out, he understands, I, you know, all of this is going to be mine someday. So I don't have to grab for it now. I don't have to hold on to it now because, because I have this great promise of God. And that's what enables him then to be a peacemaker. It's when I think everything hangs on my shoulders that I've got to fight for every inch of ground, right? It's when I think it's all up to me that I have to fight for every inch of ground. But when I have confidence in God and I have confidence in God's blessing on my life, then, as Mike says, I'm, I'm really dealing from a position of strength all the time because God is for me. Okay? Yeah, Rick. You mentioned something last week that family never frustrated with blessings and problems with God. Do you think you realize that well, I don't know if he realized it right away, but, but let's just move on to that point here, okay? Because that raises a good question. So, he, he has conflict over one well, he digs another well. He has conflict over that well, he, uh, and so he goes and he moves on and he digs another well. And he doesn't have conflict over that well, so what does he call it? Rehoboth, Rehoboth, okay? And the idea there, the word there means breadths or broad places. And he says specifically that he named it that, he says, because God has made a place for us and we will be fruitful in the land. And so Isaac gets to this place that he calls the broad place. Now, that's, a, that's a pretty cool term, isn't it? When we think about broad places, you know, we're most of us here are Okies, right? <laughs> we we kind of like living in Oklahoma, you know, and one of the reasons we like living in Oklahoma is because it's, you know, they're broad places here, you know, and and I, you know, I read about and see and think about these people that live in places like New York City and even the people who are quite wealthy live in these little tiny, you know, cubicles that, you know, that they pay half a million dollars or four for the privilege of living in and I go, who would ever want to live in a tin can like that? You know, I like living in it. Well, I, I'm sure they like it. You know, they like, you know, people who live in New York. For some reason, they like living in New York. I don't understand that. But I like the broad places. I like the places where I got elbow room. Why? You have big elbows? <laughs> you got elbows. So, so, <laughs> my neighbors have elbows, too. That's why I like it. Because my neighbors have elbows, too. I like the space because it diminishes the conflict. You notice that? <laughs> we like to have a lot of room because it tends to diminish the conflict. But now remember, 
When Isaac moved to Gerar first, and this was many years before, a number of years have passed, because remember we talked about how this chapter really spans many years. And the beginning of the chapter apparently occurs before the birth of the twins or when they're still quite young because the Philistines have no idea that Rebekah is Isaac's wife. Okay, So probably the first part of this chapter occurs before the birth of the son. Now we're, now we're up to a period of time that's following the birth of the sons and they're, they're already 15 years old because it's after the death of Abraham. So it's now 15 or 20 years later. Okay. So we're talking about a, a, a lengthy period of time that Isaac lived in Gerar. And when he first went to Gerar, God said, don't go to Egypt. You stay here. And he says, you're going to be here a while. Now, how did Isaac know to move to the broad place? How did Isaac get from Gerar? How did God get Isaac from Gerar to this broad place, Rehoboth? Through conflict, through struggle. He got him there through the struggle, through the conflict. Now, when I experience conflict and struggle in my life, you know, I just get all upset with God. And, you know, and I, this isn't fair and people aren't treating me right. And, you know, and. But what is interesting is it's the conflict itself. And when he went to Gerar. You know, he got, a, he got a vision from God that said, this is the place, you know, hang out here. But when God wanted to move him from Gerar to the broad place, he didn't come and give him a vision. He just pressured him over there. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to your own experience? One is much easier than the other. Yeah. Well, yeah, we think it is. Yeah. Of course, I've never had a vision of God, so I'm not sure it's easier. But, but I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Conflict, you don't know. That's right. I don't. Maybe you guys know. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Okay. And that's why I never liked the open window theory of Christian living. You know, or that God's going to open all these doors. You know, He doesn't say anything like that here. Yes. Got this pressure, so he's got to go somewhere. So, okay, let's go dig this other well. Yeah. Eventually, it works. And you notice what he says when he gets there? He says, at last. <coughs> what does that sound like to you? He's tired. he's tired of this struggle stuff. <coughs> so, it's been going on a while, mm-hmm. folks. You think that's down to the his way? And well, I don't know if I'm going to... I don't know if it's God's normative way with... All of you, but in my experience, it's been pretty common. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's normative in every situation, but I tell you what, it's common enough that when I read this, I went, oh. If, if we took a vote in this class and said, what if the answer is that's normal? <laughs> then everybody would say, yeah, yeah. okay, that's me. Yeah. I don't know. So and so, it's encouraging, isn't it? When we're when we're still in the midst of conflict, we look at the stories in the scripture, like the story of Isaac, and we go, "Okay, this isn't because God's abandoned me. It isn't because I don't have God's blessing on my life. It isn't because God doesn't love me or care for me or forgotten me. But it's because He's moving me to a broad place. And when I get there, I'll know it." And I'll say, at last. 
I'm in a broad place. Well, he spends a period of time there. We don't know how long. And then he moves to Beersheba. Now, what is the significance of Beersheba? Okay, it comes up again and again. The first time we encountered it was when Hagar was driven out with, with Ishmael and she went out and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba and that's the first time we hear about it. And then the next time we hear about it, Abraham is there and that incidentally is where, <coughs> where the first Abimelech comes and, and strikes that peace treaty with, with Abraham. And actually Beersheba is, as, as much as any place, is where Isaac grew up. As much as any place is to Isaac, it's hometown. Okay? And finally, after all these many years, he comes back to Beersheba, and on the very night he gets there, what happens? The Lord appears to him. Now, maybe I just imagine this because this is the kind, this is the kind of person I am, you know, when, when I need to talk with God or I think God needs to talk to me, I go out at night and I go out for a long walk out as far away as I can get from the distractions and I get under the stars and I talk with God and I've done it all my life. And I kind of see that in the life of Isaac because remember when, when he first met his wife, what was he doing? He was out walking in a field, wasn't he? He was out meditating in the field, Genesis chapter 24. You know? And... And certainly he must have been alone, you know, and, and he's just arrived in Beersheba. He has not yet even pitched his tent, incidentally. This happens on the first night he gets there, and we find out he pitches his tent after this event. So he hasn't even pitched his tent there. He's got to Beersheba. He's as much as he ever could be in a, in a foreign land. He's back home. And he goes out in the field to think. You know, now... He probably had a lot to think about. Remember, he has quite a large entourage now, probably several thousand people he's responsible for. Okay, So he probably had a lot. Maybe he was just going out, just planning what they were going to do on the next day or whatever. Or maybe he was going out to talk with God. I don't know what. But at any rate, he's out there and he encounters the living God a second time in his life. And God comes to him and just repeats to him again these same covenant promises that he had given to his father. I'm with you. I bless you. I'll multiply your descendants and I'm going to do it for the sake of your father Abraham. I'm going to do it because I made him a promise and I'm going to keep that promise and that means doing it for you too. And what is Isaac's response? Yeah. He worships the Lord, doesn't he? Calls upon the name of the Lord. He's reminded... He comes to Beersheba and God appears to him immediately upon his arrival in Beersheba and it's like God saying... Okay, I brought you here. This is good. It's, it's God affirming in Isaac's mind and heart that this is his place for him. Not permanent. He's still a sojourner. He's still a wanderer. He's still an alien in a land of promise, like Hebrews says. But for now, this is where God wants him and he affirms that. And he says, you know all that goody, all that goody stuff I did for your dad? I'm going to do it for you. And I'm going to do it for you because I promised your dad I would. And so I'm going to keep all these promises. <clears throat> now, remember, 
as we said last week and as we said this morning, <clears throat> the purpose of chapter 26, one of the purposes of chapter 26 is to remind us what is at stake in the conflict between Jacob and Esau. So let's just do a little imagination here, if you will. This isn't the way it happened, but just kind of imagine that Isaac is out there and God comes to him and God speaks these promises to him. And just imagine that Esau and Jacob are there too. And they're looking on. And they're hearing what God says to their father Isaac. And I'm creating this scenario. And like I say, this isn't what really happened, but I'm creating this scenario to picture for you what's at stake in the conflict. So imagine Esau and Jacob out there and, and their father is hearing those things and knowing what we know about Esau and knowing what we know about Jacob, if Esau is there and he's seeing God speak to his father Isaac and tell his father Isaac these things, what is Esau feeling and thinking at this point? So what? So what? You know, he's probably over here playing in the dirt or something. He's totally, you know, he's totally ignoring it. How do we know that? Because we know he despises spiritual things. He despises the things of God. He's so preoccupied with the immediate, the now, the temporal, and the material that the eternal values are irrelevant to him. But on the other hand, if we go over on the other side and Jacob is over here and he's watching, what's he thinking? I want that. I want that. I want that more than anything else in my life. I want that. I want the blessing of God on my life. And when I think about that, then I, then I try to apply it in my own life and I think, where do I stand in reference to the things of God? And where do I stand in reference to the, that, those things which are my birthright? My birthright, <clears throat> not because of whom I was born to physically, but, but because of whom I was born to spiritually. How do I feel about those things? you think Jacob was that spiritual or did he just want to stop? I, mean, I, I don't treat it to him that high of a uh, not well, no, not yet. He's no, God's yeah. blessing. He's just yeah. working on God's blessing as Isaac's property. You know, well, I want the double. Uh, yeah, I think it is a period of time while God cultivates that in his life because I don't think, and that's why I think he keeps grabbing for it through carnal means until he finally gets to the riverbank on the way back and he finally realizes, you know, what all is at stake. Yeah, I think he's still pretty carnal at this point. Yeah. <clears throat> But the difference is, it's still the blessing of God. And he wants it. He desires it. And we see that in his life. Okay. <clears throat> and, and whether he wants it simply for the material benefit of it or whatever, I, you know, I, I assume at this point you're, you're probably right on that, Mike. And I think about that. Well, actually, when I think about salvation, and I think, why does anybody ever come to Christ? And not a one of us ever came to Christ without selfish motives involved. <laughs> None of us ever came to Christ for the glory of Christ and the glory of God. You know, <clears throat> when you first came to Christ, you weren't thinking, oh, I want to glorify God. And I want to. You were thinking about you, weren't you? You were thinking about saving your skin or solving your problems. 
And every one of us who came to Christ came to Christ for selfish reasons. And God is able, that's the grace of God, isn't it? That He's able to save us in spite of the fact that even when we came to Him, we came with selfish purposes in mind. That's the grace of God. Yeah. Gary. He gives him a condition, doesn't he? <laughs> and at that point, if I were God, I'd say, well, stick it, man. <laughs> but God doesn't. He fulfills it and he comes back to that very place later. And, he re- and then he remembers. Oh, yeah, this is what I promised God. It's an awesome story that we'll get to as we go on through Genesis. Well, so we have this then, uh, uh, this encounter of Isaac and, and he encounters the Lord. And then we have, as Mike mentioned earlier, Abimelech comes back to him. Suing for peace. <laughs> I want a peace treaty with you. Why does Abimelech now want a peace treaty with him? Yeah, he thought God was on this guy and he didn't want to be on the opposite side. <laughs> He's scared, as Mike says. Isaac's negotiating here from a position of peace. So, to put it in the modern terms, he's, you know, Isaac's peacefully living there in his house, there in Beersheba, and he hears a knock on the door, and he goes to the door, and there's Abimelech and his advisor and his general of his army. And what does Isaac say? <laughs> Isn't that a great greeting to get, you know, when you're going, wanting to have peace with somebody and the first thing you hear from is, you hate me, you sent me away, what are you doing here? Yeah. Been... <laughs> yeah, he says, now we, yeah, we, we did you only good and we didn't touch you. And there's a, that's an interesting situation that's going on there because it happens in our lives all the time. That we have a conflict with somebody, we have a, you know we have some kind of situation in, with somebody, and they've wronged us, or we may maybe the other way around we've wronged them. But just to personalize it for us, they've wronged us, and then at some point they want reconciliation. Did you ever notice how oftentimes the person who wronged you, even if they are willing to acknowledge that they wronged you? really don't appreciate how much they've wronged you? Did you ever notice that? Can you be reconciled on those terms? Can you be reconciled when the person who comes to you and says, okay, I wronged you. I, I, you know, I know I just, yeah. But really, you know, I treated you pretty good too. You see what Abimelech's focused on? Abimelech is focused on all the good stuff. You know, he's just been blasted by Isaac. <laughs> you know, and, and he just focuses on the good. Now, what Abimelech says is, to one degree, true. They didn't touch Isaac and they didn't touch Rebecca. Remember the whole thing about the deception and everything? They didn't touch him. And they did treat him right. And Abimelech issued this order, don't anybody touch Isaac. Okay, So nobody touched Isaac. They just plugged up all his wells. Okay. Well, you know, for you and I, living in contemporary American society in Norman, Oklahoma, and we turn on the tap and the water comes and, you know, we don't think anything about it, you know, it sounds like a, just a mild inconvenience. This is a guy who had a couple thousand people, you know, a couple thousand people depending on him and all the livestock and everything. And every time this happened, he had to move. How do you like moving? 
you and your little family are four or five or six people. And your handy little rider rental truck, you know? How do you like moving? It's not easy, is it? How would you like doing it if you were Isaac? Having to fold up the tents and load them on the camels and, and travel through that heat and, and several thousand people while you're at it, you know? How would you like to do that? This was no, this was no minor inconvenience to Isaac. And oftentimes, oftentimes, when there is a conflict, the person who's done the wrong, even if they acknowledge that to some degree they've done the wrong, they don't really understand or appreciate how much they've hurt the other person. And so, what I'm expecting Isaac to say here is, now wait a minute, Abimelech, that's not how I remember things. Let's get this straight before we have a peace treaty. But he doesn't do that. And I ask myself, why doesn't he do that? Why, why does he just right away say, as apparently he does, okay, we'll have a peace treaty. And he makes a big feast for him. So there's a party for him. Part of the covenant, we talked about the thing covenant for, that feast is part of the covenant ceremony. So he has the covenant, he has the covenant feast. And then the next morning they have the covenant oath. And he sends him on his way in peace without ever straightening Abimelech out on the real facts of the case. Pardon? Well, he's a peacemaker. That's part of it. He did state it once. Yeah. But that would have been enough for me if I stated it once and the other guy had come back. You know? That's all right. Yeah. What were you going to say, Rick? It didn't make any difference. Why didn't it make any difference? This had nothing to do with God's work in his life, God's blessing yeah. on his life. And God was going to accomplish it no matter what. Yeah. It really didn't matter. How many times do we get upset with people over things that really don't matter? How many times do we walk away with hurt feelings over things that don't really matter? How many times do we walk around with a chip on our shoulder just waiting for somebody to knock it off and it doesn't matter? You know what I think it comes down to? I think it comes down to Isaac knew that all those things he had experienced in him had brought him to a broad place. I think he has the heart of Joseph here who says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so he's just willing to go, okay, I've, said, I've stated my case. You've stated yours. Let's live in peace. And they go on from there. Which means he humbled himself. He humbled himself. That's right. He didn't insist on people seeing things his way. He was more interested in the higher priority of a peaceful relationship with his neighbors. Well, we won't talk about the last couple of verses because uh, they really do lead into the next chapter and we're out of time. Because uh, they, are, they are really a segue into the next chapter, the story about Esau there. So we'll pick that up and go into the next chapter next week. But let me just remind you, everything we've talked about, what we've seen in this chapter is God's great blessing and care and presence with Isaac. That's what we've been seeing through chapter 26. God is with this guy no matter what happens. And that, my friends, is what's at stake in this question of who gets the birthright and who gets the blessing. Okay? We'll pick that up next week.